Hello, everyone, and welcome to the False Nines. This is the 54th episode of a bi-weekly footballing discussion. I am your host, Zach Pensack, alongside my friend, Adam Goffin. Adam, how are you doing today? Footy, Zach. What time is it? Footy. <laughs> Adam and I Adam and I doing a, an early morning episode, or a rarity for us, but uh, raring to go and ready to talk about this last weekend's Premier League action, uh, an eventful weekend it was, Adam. It certainly was. Yeah, lots of really good kind of close games. Um, yeah, the, lots of lots of shared spoils, if you will, um, during this weekend. Um, very excited to get into talking about them. No more excited I could be than to talk about the Merseyside Derby. For once, we had a game that on paper could be competitive, Zach. Yeah, it's been, what was it, 10 seasons, I think, since Everton has beaten Liverpool. Uh, right. So uh, uh, for, for two teams that play each other, a minimum of twice a season. That's a, a pretty extended uh, drought for for the the Toffees. And, and they went into this game high of confidence, uh, sitting atop the Premier League table uh, with 12 points from four matches. It was a perfect record for them. Um, and what an eventful match it was. It ended 2-2, so Everton still on top of the Premier League table on 13 points. However, really the story of this match was uh, two specific events, one at the beginning, one at the end, that really defined what we saw. Um, and, and the, the event at the beginning of the match being the Jordan Pickford Challenge. Um, I, I think now four days past the match, most folks will have, have seen a video replay. If you haven't, it was a, a really, really dangerous and reckless two-footed off-the-ground challenge that Jordan Pickford put in on Virgil van Dijk. Uh, van Dijk has since gotten medical scans and unfortunately uh, revealing a uh, some sort of issue with his ACL ligament and he will most likely be out the remainder of the season uh so so the question i have for you adam is is not as much about um you know the the challenge itself but more about jordan pickford as a whole uh, a lot of people outraged that pickford hasn't faced any retrospective action since the challenge the fa has confirmed that it will not be banning him which in my opinion is a mind-blowingly ludicrous decision um but but what is your take of this? How does this make Pickford look? Do you think Pickford, you know, can can write this off as some sort of some sort of flash flash of red, or, or is this kind of is this a a sign of a bit more of an insidious nature that might be, uh, you know, within the England number one? Listen, um, I think it's fair to say that neither you nor I are fans of Jordan Pickford, and when he went in for that challenge, I don't think that he necessarily went in to win the ball he went in to take the player out yep he, he's only got little arms you're absolutely right um but he didn't go in to win the ball he went in to take the player out and what's weird about it is he can't have known at that time that van dyke was offside another interesting point to make here zach is liverpool were one nil up when this happened if they lose a man everton if a penalty is given chances are good chances it, it's going to go to two nil you're going to be two nil up at goodison against 10 men the game is over and they got this one wrong. 
the refs got this one wrong. So the, the call was that because he was, Van Dyke was in an offside position when they reviewed it with VAR, a penalty couldn't be given. And they, I, I guess they just decided not to give a red card because you can give a red card to somebody on the touchline if you want. You can send a coach off who's not involved in the play. You can send somebody to the stands that's already on the sideline. Like there's plenty of options for you in terms of how you can send players off. But then to actually review it by the FA and still decide that nothing was wrong. It's almost like they're trying to stand behind VAR more so than they are alienate, you know, uh, an Everton player and perhaps maybe not alienate the current England number one. It's a very weird situation for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't take a conspiracy theorist of the of the most obscure mindset to think that there have been times in which the English Football Association makes decisions that seem puzzling, um, but then upon second thought seemingly benefit somebody who is a, a large picture player or, or member of uh, the England national team lineup or, or just English football as a whole. So I think, you know, that the idea that Pickford was perhaps given some sort of leniency because of that is you know, maybe there was a whisper in the era of a FA executive. I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility, but I do worry that this is becoming somewhat of a trend for Jordan Pickford. You know, we, we know that he is, he uh, is prone to rash challenges, but I think this goes to a different level of, of just the overall mentality and, and behavioral consistency that we're seeing out of him. Uh, and just this, reckless I think is the only way of describing it you see it time and time again of him leaping into challenges or, or him losing his mind after making a goalkeeping mistake and it just it makes me ask the question like how how much longer is the rope for Jordan Pickford when it comes to the Everton number one spot and then the England number one spot as well I think it's a pretty short rope for Everton I think the Ancelotti loan day signing of a goalkeeper I think it was Robin Olsen came in on loan for the season I think that was a precursor of what's to come. Um, I don't know. He's a good shot stopper. He pulled off a really good save in that match, diving up to his top right in the top left-hand corner to, to stop a Liverpool chance in that game. And then you're reminded of like some of the good stuff that he does, but he just loses his head so often. And he fluffed one at the end of the game, which we'll get to in, in a second here. I just want to close the book here on the Virgil van Dijk conversation. This is a big injury for Liverpool. This is their captain. This is their probably world's best if not top three in the world center back certainly um out for the season and they've got to navigate the champions league they've got to try and retain their their title personally i think this is a potentially derailing repeat title season injury for liverpool yeah it, it's really it would really really speak volumes on the ability and the the ability that Jurgen Klopp has to kind of shift his lineup and also the ability uh, that they he has to dip into the depth that they have on that team if they are able to put up a a serious title retention campaign because you're right Virgil van Dijk is is really everything to that club um and we've seen it time and time again you know when when he is <laughs> when he's in form which is more often than not it is it's not possible to 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 get by the man and we we saw it even later in the game so to to kind of go through uh you know what actually happened after the what was it fourth minute um it, it was a very entertaining fixture so as adam mentioned uh liverpool did have a lead in that match through a sadio mane goal that was just 
fantastic build-up play. I think there were six members of the of the Liverpool team involved in in that one before Mane roofed it over Pickford's head, um, and then that that horror challenge on Van Dyke happened. Everything kind of shifted from there. Everton drew the game 1-1 uh, on a James Rodriguez corner that was headed in by Michael Keane. Um, and then back and forth, back and forth, Mo Salah putting up Liverpool with a just a phenomenal volley, taking it one time off a header from the defender um, into the bottom corner. And then Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Adam's man of the... Seemingly since you joined the podcast, I feel like you've been singing his praises, and rightly so. Uh, it, the Premier League's leading scorer getting another one, towering over Joe Gomez for a header to, to tie the match there, but um, really was evidence of the effect that losing Van Dyke had on Liverpool. You, you would have to assume that it would have been, it would have been tough for Calvert-Lewin to climb over Andy Robertson if, if Van Dyke was on the pitch for that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point to make. That said, you know, Based on the chances created in the game, just looking at the game holistically, there was a ton of possession for Liverpool. Um, they they definitely came in and bossed possession, held onto the ball, retained the ball well. And they scored a couple goals. Like the first goal, they cut open Everton. The second goal, I thought, was, you know, for most people, a half chance. And then you put it on the end of the boot of Salah, and then you've got a wonder goal, right? So not everybody in the league would have scored that. I don't think Everton necessarily gave up a ton of really good goal-scoring chances to Liverpool despite the possession. I thought Everton actually made the better goal-scoring chances in the game. So all in all, I thought a draw was probably a, a fair result. There was another talking point with Richarlison getting sent off for the reckless challenge, himself also getting injured in the process. So that, that might be something that hurts Everton over the course of the next few games. That said, they have Southampton and Newcastle, so maybe not. Um, but coming back to the end of the game, it's 2-2. We have an opportunity for Liverpool ball gets played through. Mane goes through, pulls it back. Jordan Henderson fires it, and Pickford fluffs his lines, and it somehow manages to creep away across the line for what seems like a three-two win at the death for Liverpool at Goodison. And then VAR gets involved, Zach, and I'll let you take the rest from here. <laughs> Love to hear your thoughts on it. So VAR showing—I I don't even know if showing is the right word claiming that Sadio Mane in the build-up play um, Sadio Mane again was the one who played the ball across to Jordan Henderson for the goal um, Sadio Mane offside according to VAR and it really really even with the instant replay even with all the technology did not appear to me as though he was in an offside position so it begs the question Adam uh, you know we've seen these these incredibly incredibly you know, minute, the, the, you know, the end of the toe on the boot being what marks a player as offside and preventing either a goal scoring opportunity, or in this case, a goal itself. And it makes me ask the question, is, is the problem not that all of these calls are being made, but or more so that the problem is that the rule exists in the way that it does, where technically, if if your if your toenail is offside, then you are marked offside. Um, do you, do you think that the rule needs to be changed in any sort of way? Because in this case, it didn't seem as though there was anything that Mane did that gave him any additional benefit. And that's essentially what offside is there for, is preventing, in, in American sports terms, cherry picking or just giving yourself a an advantage over the defense. And that's something that, in, in this specific play, it didn't appear that Mane had. Therein lies the the most difficult decision that the FA have on their hands. Because it's really hard to 
say, where is that fine line of you look at a replay and you see that somebody's offside by half a body and you're like, that's offside. But then you look at this Mane situation and his fingernail is maybe slightly offside, but his feet are level with the last man. And you're like, well, why have they given that? Because technically part of his body is offside. So I was frustrated with the decision as well, but I don't really know how the FA wins in this scenario. Like, how do you actually define what is offside and what is not if it's not part of the body being beyond the last man? So I've I've been frustrated by it. I thought it was a perfectly legitimate goal that should have should have stood in this scenario. But I don't know how the FA wins in changing the VAR rule. Like, do you have any suggestions on how like you would actually be able to correctly implement an offside rule with VAR assistance? <laughs> As you said, that that really is a million dollar question. I mean, it it makes you wonder if a potential solution would almost be this regressive mentality or this regressive thought process of leaving it fully up to the referee so the referee being able to go perhaps getting a shout in his ear from the var crew saying you should look at this but the referee being able to go to the monitor and himself or herself judging if the striker or whoever the ball was played to had some sort of advantage based on their positioning now i understand that that really opens up pandora's box to essentially everything you're you're essentially writing off the kind of rule itself and saying that it becomes a completely subjective decision so i don't know if that's the right solution but it is it is difficult because right now is not working and i don't think anybody will argue with you on that i don't think that the current format for var in the way that it's used for offside is benefiting the game of football in the english premier league um and a, a, a change a change needs to be implemented in some way or else we're going to continue to see this to the point at which <laughs> to the point at which like the game itself will be changed the way in which players move and run will be changed and i don't think it's for the better no i completely agree with you i i struggle with the idea of the referee kind of having the veto power there uh, maybe they can. I just think about referees have allegiances too, right? Mark Clattenburg's a Newcastle fan. He's refereed Newcastle games in the past and made decisions that might be deemed a little questionable on the side of Newcastle, which I've, I'm totally fine with. But you know what I mean. They're, they're, new, referees are fans of the game themselves. They have their own teams. So it's, it's just a tricky one, isn't it? It's a video assistant referee. It's not the computer. It's still a person at the end of it making a decision. So you're, you might have the same issue right there, but just tough. I don't. I don't. It's it's hard to it's hard to know what the right thing to do is here, especially with it being such uncharted territory. Anyway, that that game finished up. Merseyside derby, being a two-two draw, a point for Everton, which I think they'll be very happy with. And Liverpool, obviously disappointed by nature of the disallowed goal right at the death. Mm -hmm. So the Merseyside derby, the first of two very exciting uh, matches on Saturday that ended in a draw, the second of which was the Chelsea-Southampton game that I think very few people, uh, I guess uh, maybe some folks predicted a scoreline of this nature. Um, I myself was not one of them, but Chelsea uh, twice blowing a, a lead that they have um, against Southampton. The, the match ended in a 3-3 scoreline. Goals for Chelsea coming from Timo Werner getting his 
<coughs> getting two goals, excuse me, and then the third from Kai Havertz. So really a, a summer signing affair for Chelsea, but still those questions that, that are being asked of, of their defense. And then, of course, uh, of Kepa Rita Balaga, again, having uh, a, direct, a, a direct role in one of those Southampton uh, goals. Yep, I think that's the main talking point for the game for me. You, you mentioned, obviously, Turbo Timo and Havertz getting on the score sheet. Uh, Timo setting up the goal for Havertz as well. It was really, really uh, good performance from him all around in the game. But for me, the main talking point, again, remains Chelsea's goalkeeper in defense. So just to kind of give a little bit of background there, Mendy had a thigh injury. He'll be out for an undetermined amount of weeks here, not not months. So they have this opportunity, Lampard does, to make a decision. Do you bring in Kepa, who's clearly out of favor, or do you bring in Willy Caballero, who started several games towards the end of last season in place of Kepa as the number two? And what they decided to do was bring in Kepa. Oh, oh my God, did that backfire uh, in spectacular fashion. You mentioned that second goal that was conceded, a Che Adams goal. Kepa was flapping all around the place, coming to claim a ball that he should never have come to claim. And then essentially it gets on the end of Che Adams's foot and he makes a reckless dive across, just a last gas dive to try and save it. It goes straight through his hands and it was just... Right there in one goal summed up Kepa's Chelsea career. It was it was horrific. And I think the other thing to talk about from a defensive standpoint is Tiago Silva was out injured. And that for me, uh, when they don't have Tiago Silva in that team, that Chelsea defense is a mid to lower table backline. They signed Chilwell in the summer. They brought Chilwell in. But Chilwell's not really in there necessarily for his strong defensive gains. And he's a left back, right? So he's powering up the left-hand side and he's creating chances and he scored a goal already. Great. He's fantastic in that sense. But they need center backs, Zach. They, Christensen for me. I, who is that guy? Terrible defender. Awful defender. Um, just not just not a fan at all. So without Silva in that back line, Chelsea are going to continue to struggle in my eyes. Yeah, that's that's perhaps the one blip on the the summer that Chelsea had. You know, it was splashy signing after splashy signing, going out getting Werner, Havertz, uh, Hakim Ziyech, who's still uh, out injured, uh, Thiago Silva, Ben Chilwell. Um, money was definitely spent, but it, it was. You know, it, it did seem like it was one of those cases where Chelsea just didn't see the big money summer signing at center back that they needed. And so they they got Tiago Silva on a free. And you're right, this is exactly the issue. Uh, Tiago Silva in his mid-30s is somebody who's not going to be able to play week in and week out, most likely. And you see these issues that Chelsea has had for a number of years now. Christensen, Zuma, um, it's such. It's such a makeshift backline every time it comes out, um, and I think that the biggest, I think the biggest regret perhaps for for Chelsea in the summer was not getting Nathan Aki before Manchester City swooped in and picked him up. I thought that was a really savvy move by City. It seemingly happened at the moment the transfer window opened, and I think that Manchester City understood that there was a, a very small time window before other clubs would be putting in bids for Aki, so they got that done and dusted. And we're seeing that with Chelsea, as you said. We're seeing these issues in defense um, that that have been the case for a number of years. Yep. I think, you know, you think about it kind of just looking down at a higher level. Chelsea can't afford to be dropping points against Southampton and West Brom, especially in 3-3 draws. It's, I mean, you, you want to win a Premier League? Like, the, these are supposed to be Premier League title contenders. You can't be letting points slip on that. And I think the West Brom game was slightly different in that they came back from 3-0 down on 1-3-3, but they gave up a late goal in this one. We've talked a lot about Chelsea, although I want to pivot over to Southampton. Credit to them. 
Tough start to the season, pair of losses. Um, they've come back since and they've put in two wins and a draw now at Chelsea. So they're up to seven points. Again, looking pretty comfortable. We weren't too concerned about them at the start of the season. Um, figured they were a streaky team and would kind of turn it around. In, in fact, we'll get to them later on in the pod, but the exact same record as West Ham. Started off with a pair of losses, two wins and a draw. So also on seven points right now. So credit to Ralph Hasenhutl. He's got some top-class players in there, including Danny Ings. Um, and actually, I don't know if you saw, Walcott was um, really instrumental in that game-tying goal. Kind of put the cross in and the toe was put on the end of it that took the goal away from him. But Walcott going back to his boyhood club and you know, making a contribution immediately to, to steal a point at the bridge. Yeah, an exciting one for Southampton. And you're right, they, they are... Um... <laughs> they they are comfortably a mid-table side, uh, pushing perhaps to uh, breach the top 10. It, it was 2012, uh, the last time that Southampton uh, finished in the top eight. That was actually their best finish in Premier League history. And under Maurizio Pochettino as manager was when they did that. So um, it, it does beg the question, you know, can Hassan Hoodle, uh try to achieve that? same level of performance throughout the season. Uh, Danny Ings continues to score, continues to be the talisman for that club, getting the first of Southampton's goals before Che Adams uh, uh, took that goal that the Kepa fluffed his lines. And then, as you said, Theo Wolcott, of all people, still in the Premier League, still scoring on deflected crosses. So, um, yeah, I, I think a, a great point for Southampton and, and something that uh, I think will continue to expire them, inspire them going forward. Yeah. All right. Let's pivot over to one of the kind of most anticipated games of the weekend, if not the most behind the Merseyside Derby. We have Pep Guardiola and Manchester City and the returning student, <laughs> Mikel Arteta, coming back to the Etihad. So first time that he's returned competitively with his Arsenal team to Manchester City. And uh, I think we talked about this a little bit offline we're potentially expecting a little bit of a goal fest. You know, you got Aubameyang on one side, Sterling's in fine form. But then on the flip side of that, you've also got two teams that have markedly improved their defenses. Arsenal tightening things up the back with the signing of Gabriel over the summer. You just mentioned Nathan Ake as well for Manchester City. Uh, so, you know, and there's, there's there's been other signings as well for City to bolster their defense. So it was a question of would we see a really strong offensive game and a high-scoring kind of like close game, or would we see a tight defensive affair? Maybe some people were quite surprised to see a defensive affair here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that it's it's one of those cases where um, you know what you look at the just the matchup on paper. Um, just the even the names Manchester City and Arsenal, and that that immediately excites you. You think about. As you said, you think you think immediately about Aubameyang. You think immediately about De Bruyne, Raheem Sterling, who did score for the winner for for Manchester City. Um, but then, if you do a little bit deeper of a dive and look at the table itself, Arsenal has the second best defense in the Premier League right now, behind Aston Villa, who has played a game less than Arsenal. Um, and then on the other side, Manchester City uh, has a middle-of-the-road attack so far, so far. So this is just on goals scored. Only seven goals are going to this match, six goals scored by Manchester City. So I think that, you know, a, a, a statistician might have looked at this one and said it's probably going to end 1-0, 1-1, something like that. But I was a little bit disappointed to not see just some sort of furious goal-after-goal goal, uh, match that, that we all probably hoped for. 
Yeah, I think, you know, looking at Manchester City specifically, they had that blowout loss at home 5-2 to Leicester. Take that off the table, though. If you look at their defensive performance since, they've played three games and they've conceded one goal. Now, City usually concede a lot more than that. And that one goal that they had was a clanger for Ederson against Leeds, right? So easily, had he been on his game in that one, they might not have conceded a goal against Leeds either. So I think they're starting to figure out things defensively, which is awesome for Manchester City. But at the same time, you're seeing less options in attack. Now, Aguero was back uh, into the side for this game. Aguero also played in the Champions League yesterday. So I think that, you know, we're going to start seeing maybe some more goals from from City soon, but he's on his way out. Aguero, he's aging. You know, they're looking for that natural successor. You and I have talked in depth about how we don't think that Gabriel Jesus is that player. I don't think they've quite got that silver bullet yet of player to come in and really fire in the level of goals that Aguero has been contributing over the last five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a a problem that they're going to have to solve in January, probably not in January, but January or the summer, depending on kind of what, what the table shapes up to be in, in the next couple months. But you're right. That again, again, do not think that Gabriel Jesus is, is the answer there. I think that he is far too inconsistent of a striker to be the one to lead the lines. Um, I will say one talking point that came out of this match that actually involved Aguero, but not necessarily his play, was the incident with the assistant referee. Um, if, if folks didn't see it, what happened was that the ball went out for a throw-in. The throw-in was given by the assistant referee, uh, uh, a, a woman, excuse me, I, I am unable to remember her name at the moment, but a female assistant referee gave the throw-in to Arsenal, and uh, Sergio Aguero was arguing with her, saying that it was a Manchester City throw. And then as he began to walk away to, to get back in into his position, he put his hand on her neck shoulder area in a way that in the moment on replay every single time i watch it looked extremely inappropriate and extremely demeaning and insulting to the referee putting his hand on her neck in this sort of kind of subordination way so i i don't know i i don't know if you know i'm gonna write this into his character as a person as as we do pickford when he he has incidents but Really just inappropriate from Sergio Aguero in the, the assistant referee swatting his hand away. And uh, you just don't want to see that from a player. You don't you don't want to see behavior like that, you know, physically touching a referee. And it makes you ask the question, would he ever do that if it was a male referee on the sideline? I mean, I think the answer is no, right? I mean, we've had, we've had female um, officials in the game for a long time. So I don't know that it's something necessarily new that we're considering here. It just seems like a momentary lapse of judgment on his part that didn't really reflect well on him, right? Um, I th- the last point I want to make to make on this game, Zach, is Arsenal, specifically in their start to the league, have played 5-1-3, lost two. Their two losses, Liverpool and Manchester City. So I think if Arsenal really want to have serious title contender aspirations this season, they need to be taking points against those teams around them. They can't afford to lose those games because then they fall further behind against those teams and you know they haven't quite figured that out yet they seem to have had liverpool's number in cup competitions albeit on penalties but they haven't really had an opportunity necessarily to show what they can do or they've had the opportunity but they haven't shown what they can do in the league itself yet so i think that's an opportunity area for arteta that said if you'd said you know a year ago that this is where arsenal would be and they're competing really well in those games and they're they're doing well in the league i think any arsenal fan would have bitten your hand off too 
Mm-hmm. Arsenal just one win back of uh, potentially jumping over Aston Villa uh, for second in the table, which is something we will talk about later on the pod is the incredible ascension of Aston Villa. Uh, but um, as, as you said, those two losses are, are tough to swallow for a title contender, both of which one nil victories for Liverpool and Manchester City against Arsenal. So um, either Arsenal needs to you know, be able to shore up the defense there or at least be competitive and get a goal in those matches. All right, now we are uh, very honored to be graced by our uh, our CHN brother, Elijah Newsom, coming across the digital pond from Atlanta to join us uh, for the, the Newcastle section of, uh, of this discussion. Um, obviously, the last match played on Saturday was Newcastle's match against Manchester United. Um, a horror show, a travesty, a disgrace, an abomination. A lot of words you could use to describe it. I would say for myself to, to preface this discussion, um, probably, in my opinion, one of the most frustrating games I have ever watched Newcastle play, uh, largely based on the context. We're off to a, a good start to the season. Manchester United reeling from a 6-1 defeat at uh, against Tottenham Hotspur and Newcastle playing like they were a non-league side going up against a Premier League club, terrified of doing anything. Uh, Elijah, would love to hear your take on it. I guess we can start with the tactics or lack thereof. Um, Who's to blame for this one, Elijah? Give me something there. I I do want to start with one thing, Zach. I think it's important to recognize that I don't think any of us have ever seen this. I've never seen this. And, I mean, I'm 23 years old, so maybe that's why. I'm too young. I've never seen a team lose 4-1 and not score any of any of the goals, not even the first goal they got. And Newcastle, they found a way to do that. Steve Bruce's magical magpies, they discovered a way to lose a match in which five goals were scored and managed to score none of them. I, I mean, I have no idea how that works. Um, but when you talk about tactics, I think um, – and I mentioned this to Zach off air and, like – on a text message rant earlier in the day and during the match, this, this match was a sum of everything wrong with Steve Bruce. Um, it's like we got bits and pieces of it throughout the season um, and throughout last season as well, but this was everything. Um, the tactics from the get-go, and we'll talk about that in a sec. Tactics from the get-go, match, team selection, tactics, formation, all of that's wrong. That's been a huge criticism of Steve Bruce. He can't select a team to save his life. And then you get into it and it's like, Obviously, we're not doing anything tactically. We're, we're, he's got the whole issue with not being able to sub players, not being able to recognize when there's an injury and make the right decision, subbing players on too late. I mean, there's nothing you can ask anyone to do when you're down 4-1 or 3-1. I don't even know what the score was when Nagamaron came on. And you, you, you sub them in on the 80th minute. Like That's something that Steve Bruce has been doing throughout the entire year. He, he decides, like, all right, well, you know, I have three substitutes. Let me wait until the 75th minute to start considering who I might sub. And then he gets upset when he has to make a substitution earlier than the 70th minute. So, I mean, that I don't know. I just wanted to get that off my chest real quick because I I don't know. I'm I'm I've been over Steve Bruce. I don't think anyone is for Steve Bruce at this point if you're still defending him and I'm looking at you, Luke. You're one of my good friends. I love you, Luke Edwards. <laughs> but and we've talked wine, we've made jokes. You understand my weird love for Hosselu, but man, you cannot defend Steve Bruce after this. It was it was a nightmare to say the least. But we can talk about team selection. I think the first and for, first and foremost, Newcastle 
put out a team. They did a 4-1-4-1. Um, and they decided that the move was to put John Joe Shelby and Jeff Hendrick in a position, in a formation that they've never played um, ever, like together or just in general. Like we don't really use the 4-1-4-1 ever. And um, that was kind of, that set the tone where you you have Ryan Fraser and Miguel Amron who came off international breaks um, where they both did well. Miguel was one of the better players for Paraguay. They got a win and a draw. Uh, of course, Ryan Fraser had an assist and a goal for Scotland, was absolutely on fire. Um, obviously, both are informed players, and Steve Bruce decided, hey, you know what would be good? Not playing those guys. And instead, <laughs> I'm going to play Joel Linton, who has offered literally nothing to Newcastle this 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 season. I mean, he's looked decent, but not good enough to play over anyone else. And I'm going to start Jeff Hendrick, who had one one good match, one good match where he contributed to the offense, and outside of that, has just been covering for John Joe Shelby, who, by the way, stinks. So, um, I mean, John Joe Shelby's not even good at the one thing that he's good at, which is passing. You already know he's going to be a terrible defender, but he's not even a good passer. Like, he sucks. So, it, like, the team selection off the bat was insane. I mean, there was even smaller things that normally we'd be uh, super upset about, um, like Javi Mankio not starting. Javi Mankio should have started over Emil Kraft. That one completely yeah, it's like... gets wiped over because everything else was wrong for the team. so bad. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, was, it was rough, man. It was, it was really bad. Uh, and and you do that, and you look at the team, and it's like, well, there's only two people on this team that can contribute offensively, and it's Alan St. Maxman and Callum Wilson. And that that was the game plan. Just boot it to Alan St. Maxman and hope that he does something. And I don't know. When you when that's your game plan, you're, you're screwed from the start. Yep, and this is why we bring Elijah on, listeners, for that raw passion and hatred of Steve Bruce. Uh, listen, I've been uh, a Steve Bruce apologist plenty in the past, but I, I think my patience is wearing a little bit thin here too. It's it's it was just all wrong from the Darlow injury to not subbing him off to thinking fifteen minutes later I've got one sub left. I've kept Darlow on all this time. May as well keep him on another five minutes. What's the worst that could happen? Oh, another two goals go in, right? Because the guy can't move. It was so horrible. Just really, really bad decisions on Steve Bruce's part. Poor performances all around by Newcastle. Um, I don't understand what Almiron has done to piss off Steve Bruce to not get into that team because to your point, Elijah, I, I don't understand how he's not starting. Like there's plenty of players that I would put him in ahead of in that team. <sighs> It's just not looking good right now. And you look at the table and it looks okay. But the table can be very, very deceptive at times, especially these early doors that we're in right now. And we've got some tough games coming up, guys. We got Wolves and Everton who are no mugs. Yeah. I I to, to chime in a little bit uh, and and attempt to not uh, repeat things that have been said because I think both of you really hit the nail on the head and all of my all of my feelings uh were were summed up there. I, I think that it it just it, it does shock me to to see a professional manager not understand how he needs to adapt his game plan on a match by match basis. Um, so like 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 you said, lining up Newcastle against Manchester United in the exact same way that they were lined up in in the match before, uh, it, it was just shocking because it's like Manchester United and um, it was Burnley uh, are are just not similar teams in any in any way so you're you're lining up the same team you're hoping that saint maximin can you know make that dizzying run you're hoping that saint maximin can burn defenders on the wings against a team that has world-class defenders and 
it's it's the setup, it's the inability to see what's wrong in the 50th minute. I think the big thing with Steve Bruce is I, I say in a lot of ways you can sum up him as a manager in the word fear. I think he is afraid to make changes. He's afraid of himself. I think he's so in his own head right now that he can't alter the mistakes that he has made. And I think I will make this statement right now. I think pending an injury, John Joe Shelby does not play one game without being in the starting lineup. So double negative that. I I think, I think, yeah, sorry, sorry to make that a little bit more clear. I think unless he is injured, John Joe Shelby starts every single game of the year, regardless of his form, because Steve Bruce is in love with the idea of John Joe Shelby. And he doesn't see what is actually taking place on the pitch. He's in love with the Andrea Pirlo idea of John Joe Shelby. And he doesn't see that John Joe Shelby, as you said, Elijah, is not producing. He is not impacting. Adam made a great point when we talked separately before this, saying Newcastle is now with Frazier, with Almiron, with St. Maximin, with Lewis, with Callum Wilson. It's a team that can be a fast team. It's a team that can thrive on speed. And John Joe Shelby negates everything. He negates every single ounce of pace that anybody on that pitch has because all he wants to do is take the ball, take three to five seconds, and play a pass, and you cannot be successful. And that's the thing is Steve Bruce is trying to have all these pieces work in a machine, and we all know that a team is the, – the sum is greater than the whole of its parts, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's it just – it's blinding. It's blindingly frustrating that a man who leads our club cannot see what every single fan from the pubs to the punditry knows about Newcastle United. It's not going to change. It's not going to change. This is the last thing I'll say, Adam, is I, I was going to, I was trying to sum up a, a tweet or an article that I was going to write, but my opinion about Newcastle right now is we will see flashes. We will see victories. We'll see fantastic goals, but nothing will change about the club. A one mm. flash in the pan does not, does not mean that we are improving because we are not going to improve under this setup. It, it's, 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 it's truly impossible. Here's, here's my hot take for you guys. Steve Bruce is the British Ted Lasso. Now hear well, me out. Okay. That's not a hot take. I saw the, I saw the trailer and I was like, Oh, this is, this, did they just make a movie about <laughs> Steve Bruce? Like this, this, uh, so it dawned on me the more of a great show. If you haven't watched it, Ted Lasso, Apple TV plus check it out. It's a really, really good show, but sponsored by Apple TV plus. Thank you. Apple TV for your plus. ongoing partnership. Friend of the podcast. Oh, yeah. it's, it's a great streaming service. Everybody would enjoy it. Continue on. But here's, 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 here's the comparisons that I see between Ted Lasso and Steve Bruce. No experience, no quality coaching, has the team on his side, wins the players over, ha- is charming, has a good sense of humor. Think about Steve Bruce making jokes with um, oh, yeah. uh, last season with uh, Manchester City with um, oh, Kevin De Bruyne. Bruyne. He's like, oh, we're going to get him in. Like, funny guy, like a little, little charming. Likeable guy. Like, I mean, I think everyone likes tactically. Steve Bruce. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're basically hoping that that relationship and those kind of strong bonds with the players will carry you through and they'll increase their performances. And that's what Bruce is like to me. I think that he is basically a British Ted Lasso. I mean, I, and you, you, you hit, you hit the nail on there. I, I do think it's also worth noting, like it, it, it does work. Like Alan St. Maxman is a completely different player. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that Alan St. Maxman, like, in terms of just the stuff he gets away with in terms of like training and he doesn't really get criticized or anything. Like he's able to show up late to training, really be his own person, blah, blah. blah. Like that only happens under Steve Bruce. Other managers, like you think of a Rafa Benitez, like they don't allow that type of freedom 
in, in, in the training pitch. They want you to show up and work hard. And Allen is very much not like that. And that's allowed him. And he's mentioned this multiple times about how much he loves Steve Bruce because he kind of lets him do whatever he wants. Like it works to a degree, but then you see every other negative that comes from that. And you're like, is it really worth it? Is it really worth like you just being a nice guy for like us to suck in every other regard? And uh, real quick, because I know Adam wants me to mention this. Um, and I, I brought this up earlier while we we're talking, Greg and I discovered that there's a potential Steve Bruce replacement out there. It's not going to happen. It's all hypothetical. If you think about Newcastle and, and what we can do right now, it's not, it's not an attractive job by any means, uh, considering the jobs that could potentially be available down the road. Um, but Darren, Darren Moore, I'm pretty sure that's who I said. Um, uh, yeah, that's definitely what I said. Uh, Darren Moore, former West Brom manager, now at Doncaster, in my opinion, overperformed with the West Brom team that was not good. Got him into fourth place, got fired after losing, I think, three matches. And in, in he, he didn't – I think he, he lost like three or four matches in – in 12, he won four out of those and drew the rest. It was it was an interesting firing. Now is in League One with Doncaster has taken that team who's pretty much overperformed, and they're in fifth right now. I don't know. I feel like he's better than Steve Bruce at a lot of things and also brings that same sort of like, everyone likes him. He's a nice guy. Uh, and But he's a nice guy, but with tactics. And with this roster, I'm like, the worst he can do is mid-table. I don't know. <sighs> Honest, honestly, it's it's just not an exciting managerial signing for me. Um, here's here's the thing, Elijah, that I want to bring up. Last two managers for Newcastle, who were they? Is Rafa Benitez, and I'm guessing before that. I mean, well, I guess it. Are you saying Steve Bruce? I'm saying Steve Bruce, Rafa Benitez, and who was before that? Oh, uh, was that John Carver? Uh, after McCarver was McLaren, so McLaren. Oh, yeah. um, was managing the team for almost a year. So you're telling me as a Brit, that you want me to get behind the concept of McLaren, an ex-Middlesbrough manager, Bruce, an ex-Sunderland manager, and our next manager being an ex-Doncaster manager, the three teams in the northeast of England that are in the top three divisions right now, and we want to get all of their sloppy seconds? No thank you, sir. No thank you at all. You know, hey, that's fair. That's fair. I was just saying that, like, if you're looking at managers who you could offer the job, like there's not a lot of people who you could really convince. And like, as an American, I would love a Jesse Marsh. I think he's great. I think he would be wonderful at Newcastle. He would be a dream. But is Jesse Marsh going to cry? I would cry if we signed Jesse Marsh. <laughs> but to Jesse Marsh, is this an attractive job? Yes, it's in the prim, but it's with a completely dysfunctional club, one of the worst owners in the league. But you look at Darren Moore, he's already put up with that. He's put up with dysfunctional orders. He's put up, he understands British football. So, yeah, I understand the sloppy seconds. But again, this is all for naught because, I mean, Mike Ashley's not going to fire Steve Bruce until it's January and we're in the bottom three. Jokes aside uh, on Adam's point, I, I think in a way you kind of touched on an issue that I see with Newcastle, which is the idea of like the, the idea of valuing a player or a manager's love of Newcastle over the results that we are seeing with them. So I think that the, the only reason that there is this, you know, maybe it's just the Twitter sphere that I can live in sometimes, there is this still anti-Rafa Benitez brigade that exists is because Rafa Benitez, like you said, Elijah, he's not he's not buddy-buddy. He, he, he doesn't care about becoming friends with the players. There are actually, I've read quotes and I've read different accounts of his time at Liverpool 
Like Peter Crouch on his podcast, shout out that Peter Crouch podcast, has openly said that he, him and Rafa Benitez did not really get on. Rafa Benitez won a Champions League for Liverpool. He had Liverpool overperforming in every single way. So, so that's the question: is is what as fans and what as a club do you prioritize? Do you prioritize effectiveness, which is what Rafa Benitez gave you, or do you prioritize a nice man who can talk about how John Joe Shelby plays these nice passes across the field? Like it's we want it's trophies. It's, we want it's, trophies. It's been since 1962 since we've won a trophy. Give me a trophy. It, and, and that's the thing, though. Is uh, well, like, time out, time out. We won the championship. What cost? Right, does that not count? It does not count. Second year <laughs> competition. <laughs> what my what? I think we can kind of wrap it up here because we're we're gonna go for five hours talking about Steve Bruce if we don't be can careful. I, can I can I close this? I have got one line to close. Let me close it. Let's all yeah. Well, I'll make closing points. Adam, you can go first. I'll 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 close on the closing points. So Adam, Elijah, then then I'll have one word. I won't overrun. I have one sentence to wrap it up. Steve Bruce is the parent that wants to be your friend, not your parent. I love that. Elijah, <laughs> um, anything Anything uh, to close out with? I will just say this. There's a reason why John Joe Shelby didn't like Rafa Benitez and he loves Steve Bruce. You can kind of connect the dots there. Look at his playtime under Rafa Benitez and you can kind of figure that one out for yourself. Mm-hmm. You guys pretty much took exactly what I was gonna say. There. So <laughs> I, th- I think I, I yeah, I, I think that touching touching on all those points, um, you know, the the lack of discipline, the desire to be friends. A, a football club can be a family, but it can't be a family without any sort of hierarchy. And I think that that's what we're seeing here at Newcastle. Is there's no there's no power dynamic at Newcastle. There's no like I would almost. It seems to me as though Steve Bruce is not above the players and doesn't want to be above the players. And I think that that is a massive issue because in the world in which we live in, with all the information we have on our hands, all the you know transfer rumors that can go around, the ability for players to be switching clubs uh, at a moment's notice, you need somebody to lay down the hammer. Um, and I think that's what you see at Liverpool, right? All those players love Jurgen Klopp to death, but they also respect Jurgen Klopp and they respect mm-hmm. his authority and he will wield the hammer. And I think that uh, three of those four things are true. All the players, or most of the players, like Steve Bruce. All of them respect Steve Bruce, but I don't think that they actually believe that Steve Bruce has the authority to be the true manager that Newcastle United needs. And with that, we will go to a commercial break, and we will come back and talk about Sunday Monday fixtures from the last weekend, and jump into Armchair Pundits ten and ninety, and a look at this upcoming weekend. All right, so we are back from our second commercial, or excuse me, our first commercial break. We'll give a quick run through the Sunday-Monday fixtures that took place on this last weekend. Uh, The first one we we should probably go into is uh, the Tottenham Hotspur uh, collapse that happened in London. Uh, it, it, It is funny to me that two days in a row we see a london-based club collapse and give up a third goal on a indirect free kick in the 92nd minute to to give up the lead that they had in tie 3-3 i'll check elias sports bureau to see if it's the first time that that exact situation has taken place um really really a brutal match if you're a tottenham hotspur supporter i received a barrage of text messages from my father and brother um, I, I don't think I've ever, my dad called me and left a voicemail 
He is 63 years old. That is not his style. So um, I'll leave it to you guys. Adam, how, how did this happen? So basically, here's the way I'd summarize it. After 45 minutes, Spurs were absolutely convinced they were title contenders. After 90 minutes or 94 minutes more accurately, they were brought firmly back down to earth with a bump. The first half was fantastic for Spurs. 3-0 up after 16 minutes. Kane and Son right now, you mentioned it in a text to me, Zach. They're on fire at the moment. Four goals for Kane, seven for Son, and Kane's the top assister on the season. They looked like it was just inevitable that Spurs were going to run away with this, similar to how they did 6-1 against Man U. And then West Ham. West Ham might be the hardest team to predict in the Premier League right now. Yeah, 100%. They're all or or nothing. Um, (laughs) And they came back second half and they scored from the 82nd minute to the 94th minute in 12 minutes. They scored their three goals. They fairly came back into the game. And that goal from Lanzini at the end of the game, top right-hand corner into the corner of the goal, Absolutely unbelievable. I'll, I'll kind of sum it up with this from FopMob because I sent it over to you as well. Manuel Lanzini from West Ham is very pleased with the goal and can't stop celebrating. The referee sees no other way than to book him. <laughs> a great chuckle from that. But what a point for West Ham, though. Incredible, huh? If, if you are a if you're a football fan and you can tell me with a straight face that when a goal go- goes in that is barred down and that doesn't send a chill down your spine, I'm gonna have you take a polygraph test because you like there's nothing more sweet than seeing it just go bar ground in. And oh, credit yeah. to Lanzini, that was a outside of the foot, the curve and the pace that he got on that shot. Uh, really, really a remarkable job there. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I was mentioning with West Ham, after a really poor start to the year, they've now put four past Wolves, Wolves who are a tight defensive unit, three past Leicester, who have recently beaten Man City and put five past them. And now they've gotten a point at Spurs. They've got seven from nine. Just an incredible form. Da- credit to David Moyes again. We gave him some stick at the beginning of the season, but he just keeps silencing the critics. He's uh, He finds ways to come back. Yeah, I would say this on the Tottenham match real quick. Um, I, I do think that Tottenham fans, like if you truly believe you're contenders, and I mean, honestly, I could see them, you know, really making a, a, a decent shout in the top four. I don't know if winning the league, but this is a weird season already. And it, you've already got, this is your best chance if you're not Man City or Liverpool to win the league. I mean, it's just, that's how it is. The truly great teams though, the, the, the contenders, when they have those bad losses, like this one, or disappointing draws, not this wasn't a loss, but disappointing draws, things like that, they bounce back. You look at what Man City did after they they lost 5-2 to Leicester, they immediately went the next week and put three past Burnley. So it's like, I'd like to see how Tottenham responds this week. Um, obviously, Bale is, is, is on his way to being a player that they can use, et cetera, et cetera. But if they're able to turn that disappointment into like wins and, and get on a decent run, did I think that, that like that that means hey I'm gonna take them for real they're serious but if they're they follow us up with another draw or a loss then I'm like I don't know if I can go all in on the uh, Tottenham train. Thank you for years. bringing that up to the Gareth Bale return. The prodigal son came back. I just want to make sure I didn't forget to mention that. Adam's like, before Zach says anything, I'm Welsh, so I'm going to just chime in. Really <laughs> I, I am way more important in this Welsh conversation right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. I it's not how right. It's not how you fall down. It's how you pick yourself back up. Uh, we will we'll see what happens in their na- next match. It might have been a little bit of salt in the wound. The fact that Gareth Bale had a very good opportunity to put a fourth uh, past 
uh, Fabianski before the collapse happened and he, he steered it just a bit wide. Uh, but yeah, it's a puzzling, a puzzling two teams right there. West Ham, as you said, Adam, so unpredictable Spurs. We still don't exactly know what we're going to expect out of them. I, I'd say right now, Son and Kane are the best tandem in the world. I had to right this moment. I think it might be tough to, to dispute that, but, um, in a way, in a way, the, the, uh, kind of anti-energy, the anti-matter version of the Newcastle match in which Newcastle got a lead and it made so much sense to attack and they didn't do that. And in this game, Spurs get a lead and it makes so much sense to defend and they don't do that. So uh, yeah. a, a puzzling weekend without a doubt. Yep, I think that's a, a great point there. Okay, on to the next game. Um, are Aston Villa the real deal? Aston Villa one of only two teams in the entirety of Europe with a 100% record in the top five domestic leagues in Europe with a 100% record. Aston Villa. I'll say that again. Aston Villa. After hammering Liverpool 7-2 two weeks ago, they went to the King Power. Tough game. Leicester obviously like got close to Champions League last season. This was the game where we said last time, Zach, that we were wondering whether or not Villa were going to actually show up and in successive games, whether they could put a run together. And they did. They won 1-0 at the King Power, an incredible result for them. Yeah, with with, with Ross Barkley scoring too, which was just a little bit sweeter for them of a player that they targeted this summer. Uh, a bit of a deflection on that goal, but uh, every every single one counts. It, I mean, it's it's four matches into the season for Villa, but you're already asking the question. Um, you know, they've just beaten Leicester. Are they are they this year's Leicester 2015? Is, is is that where we're watching transpire? And obviously, you know, the the allure of that season of, of it never having happened in that way before. Uh, obviously, something that is unique. I see Elijah shaking his head. I, I know I'm being a little hyperbolic here, but you do have to be impressed by by Aston Villa so far this season. I'm I'm not that impressed because okay, let's look. If you want to dissect like their matches, first and foremost, they lost to Stoke in the in the EFL Cup. I'm just going to throw that out there. So they're not they're not they're they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable. Sorry, just, Elijah. Elijah. The EFL Cup is that part of the Premier League season? I'm just I'm just saying that did like they, did they play a full strength side in that Elijah? I'm just saying that they're still they're vulnerable. I'm not I'm not sold on Aspville, and this is why I think that every team there's always a weird result every season. Um, and like Newcastle had their their five nil battering of Tottenham before they were before at the end of the season a couple seasons ago, but when they were relegated, they had the the three nil win over Chelsea the following season. Like there's always weird wins where teams just like you know there's a massive upset and you're like, okay, I got to respect that. You look at the rest of Aston Villa's results. I'm not impressed. You, you barely beat Leicester and Hey, I'm, and I'll say this barely beat Leicester 90 minute, whatever, whatever you beat Fulham, Fulham stink. You beat Sheffield, Sheffield, you beat Sheffield who stink and are also down a man. I'm just not, I'm not sold completely on them at all. Um, you barely beat a man United team that was in disarray. Uh, the only team that's made Man United look good is Newcastle, which does it's not saying much. So I'm just, I don't know, call it a crime to be bullish on, on Aston Villa right now because there's nothing that I've really seen that's like, all right, I'm super impressed. Outside of the one win they had, the 7-2 Liverpool win, and I, and I agree, great win. I just think that's an anomaly. I think that at the end of the day, I'm going to say it here, Aston Villa is going to still find themselves in a relegation scrap, they're going to be at the bottom of the table because as the season goes on, I think there's going to be teams that figure them out. There's not much I think they've done to improve themselves as a team. They've made a couple of signings, but is that going to be enough 
for a team that like literally like we are talking one goal away from being relegated. So I don't know. I'm just saying great assault. They've got seven goals in one game, but outside of that, it's been one nil after one nil over bad teams. All right. A quick, quick thing here, Elijah. Um, Adam and I like to make a lot of cheeky little bets on our pod, but I'll, I'll up the ante here. I bet you $50 that Aston Villa does not come within two points of the relegation zone at any point during this season. At any point during this season. At any point during this season, they will not be within two points of 18th. Man, I that's a tough bet because I, I ultimately think they'll be in that like 15th to like 17th range. Relegation, not, a rele, relegation scrap is defined unofficially as being within one victory of a club below <laughs> you, but to going into the relegation zone. Three okay. points. I'll give you. I'll give you three points. All right, I'll take that bet. Sure, right. why not? Woo, I'm just not bullish on them, dude. I don't know. I, I th- this happens every year. There's one team that like starts hot and then they stink the rest of the season. You're like, oh wow, remember that team? They were good. Like, who cares? They're will, starting hot. I'll, I, Adam, sorry, I'll, I'll I'll let you go, and I don't want to spend too much time on Aston Villa here because we do still have a good amount to talk about. But all I will say, all I will say is the best defense with two goals allowed and the best goal differential after four matches. Again, all playing play. crap teams. I'm sorry that full of Liverpool, Liverpool and Leicester. And I said, I said the Liverpool match is an anomaly. We've seen Newcastle grind out matches against. Are you saying Newcastle are for real? Like they've done that. They've grinded out matches against teams. And they've they've ended up winning one nil. Blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that they're for real. I'm not saying Aston Villa. I'm not ever going to say like Aston Villa is not a top ten team. Like they're not where they are right now. That is not. That's just. It's just not what they are. Like let's let's. Let, I I like this fire that you're bringing. Up. <laughs> I, I Adam, I'll, I'll let you have one point here, and then and then let's move on to the next match because I think this is uh this, this is a fiery one. I didn't think we four matches in the year we'd be discussing. If Aston Villa will will go undefeated, but uh, Adam, any any thoughts on that? Listen, I, th- I think what I'd sum up with is Villa are overperforming right now. Absolutely. No, without a, without a shadow of a doubt. Will they regress to the mean? Probably. Where will the mean be? I think top 10 is reasonable. I don't think Villa are in, in with a shout of relegation this season. I think, Zach, you just won 50 bucks. Um, and honestly, uh, they've strengthened in all the right areas. They have Martinez, man of the match performance, um, most clean sheets in the Premier League this season with three, tied with Rui Patricio at Wolves. They've brought in Ollie Watkins, who scored a hat-trick on his debut against Liverpool. They've brought in Ross Barkley, who is a top, top player that in any other team other than Chelsea probably would be getting significant game time. They've got talent all over the field. They've signed Grealish to a long-term deal. They've got John McGinn, who's finally fit. Like, There's a ton of talent in that team, buddy. I, I think I think they finish minimum. There was a 12. there was a ton of talent in that team last year too. I mean, you've added three players. I get that. I'm I'm all for it. But in again, all the right I'm, areas in all the in right all areas. The right areas and I agree. Like you could, I mean, you could say Newcastle added talent in all the right areas too. But again, that's a whole different situation. But again, I, I, I'm with you. I think they were aggressive to me. Obviously, it was dumb of me to accept the bet with Zach. But <laughs> you want to go 100? Right. I think they will regress to the mean. And if this is any other Premier League season where the top of the table isn't in disarray and every and the results are so wacky, I think they end up regressing to 15th. But top 10 isn't unimaginable. But we'll look at the season and be like, this is a weird season. I don't know if Astonville... Like, I still think people could pick Astonville to go down next season. Yeah, that 
Okay, that that's fair enough. Uh, we we will. Uh, I'm going to hold you to that bet, though, Elijah, because I think there's. Oh yeah, no, go ahead, me, whatever. Um, all right, so so running running through the the remainder of the the Sunday matches, uh, a couple of snoozers from there on. I would say not a lot to report uh, from the Wolves. Leeds match. I think the the one thing there is another match where we were all hoping to see a, a goal fest. Uh, Bielsa ball wasn't really on display there, and uh, credit to uh, Nuno Espirito Santo seemed to really kind of figure out how to to lock it down and talk about a versatile manager, a team that is known for their high flying ways. Um, he was able to just shift Wolves into that defensive shape that they needed on Monday. Yeah, an interesting game this one. Leeds had two-thirds possession in it, but they actually had less shots on target than Wolves did. So Wolves, perfectly comfortable to play on the counterattack at Ellen Road, came in. Raul Jimenez, fortunate goal that he scored, but here's a stat for you that I thought was worth sharing. Since the start of last season, Raul Jimenez is one of only four Premier League players to have scored more than 30 goals in all competitions. Incredible nice. stat. The other three, yeah. Raheem Sterling, Harry Kane and Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, incredible statistics. So that just shows you they got a top quality striker in Jimenez there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, only thing I would add is it's nice to see them bounce back with two solid defensive performances. Again, one's against Fulham, so I'm not really like super pumped about that. But you know, after giving up three goals and four goals to start off the season, coming back with two straight clean streets sheets is is impressive, and I, I have to respect that. Yeah, I'll, I'll go into kind of the quick recaps on the remainder of the games this past weekend, Zach, if you don't mind. So Sheffield United scoring a late penalty to rescue a point at home against Fulham, 1-1 draw. We had Brighton with a 90th minute equalizer to cancel out a Wolf Saha penalty for Palace and send both teams home with a point. Another 1-1 draw. And then the other game was West Brom and Burnley played out a goalless board draw at the Hawthorns. The big takeaway from these three games for me is that these are all six teams that I would identify based on early season performances are going to be there and thereabouts in the relegation battle. These are teams that Newcastle are probably going to be looking at relegation six pointers as we go through the season. And all of them only took a point. I think that was really, really good in terms of results for Newcastle, especially as we got spanked by Manchester United. I felt pretty good that, you know, nobody really pulled away from us dramatically or overtook us in the league standings after those three games. Yeah. Those, the, those three matches uh, were 14 through 20. If you remove Manchester United, who's in 15th, Palace, Brighton, West Brom, Burnley, Sheffield, United, Fulham, uh, fill out that bottom seven. So I think that is a really good point, Adam. Uh, the one thing I'm angry about is I, I those matches were always going to be draws. Those matches were always going to be draws. And the fact that I didn't put money on all three of those matches ending in draws frustrates me a little bit. Uh, but I, I think that you're right. I think that it's not too early for a six-pointer when you know that you're going to be in the relegation battle. Yep, totally agree. Yeah, Elijah, any, any, really any thoughts on those? No, There's not I mean, much yeah, to talk about there. Head on, on, it's like those teams all stink. You know how I feel about that. That's probably the only reason Zach's going to win this bet is because those teams are going to be so much worse. <laughs> it's like, I think it was Southampton last year. He's already that, conceded like, the bet. <laughs> like Southampton <laughs> last year started off hot or Crystal Palace the year before where it's like, they start off hot and everyone's like, you're overperforming, but they're not punished for it because everyone else below them is so bad that they end up finishing like 13th or 14th. Exactly. You just you don't you don't have to be the best. You just need to be better than better than the three worst. And I think that that's what we're seeing uh, with a number of clubs that you know are, are not terribly inspiring so far this season. Yep. 
All right. Where do we go next, Mr. Zachary? All right. Well, I, I think that uh, before we uh, go into our next commercial break, something that I did want to bring up, um, and we don't have to go into too much length on it, but um, a lot of reports breaking out in the, the last week or so about the revealed plans for quote unquote project big picture that was being pushed out by Rick Perry, the uh, official title, the president of the English Football League. That sounds right. Um, and uh, as well as a, a consortium of folks largely from Liverpool and Manchester United, essentially for those who haven't caught up a uh, number of stories posted in, in The Athletic, really doing a good job of, of kind of giving a, a full summary. Um, plans were revealed that there have been uh, up to three to four years of backroom discussions between uh, those parties that I mentioned to essentially change the structure of English football as a whole. Uh, the big key takeaways here were reducing the Premier League to 18 clubs from its current status at 20, uh, giving more money to the lower leagues in terms of financial packages, but also taking the power of vote away from the 14 clubs who are not the quote-unquote big six in the Premier League. So the big six comprised of Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, Chelsea, Tottenham, and Arsenal. The big six there. Uh, currently, the structure in the English Football League is every club in the 94 clubs, or excuse me, the 74 clubs have the exact same voting power. And what this program would do is shift that power to the top six, the clubs that, according to them, are driving the majority of the revenue for the Premier League and therefore deserve the majority of the voting rights. So soon after this was leaked, there was an emergency meeting. It was unanimously voted down to go through with this plan as is. Obviously, this is not the end of the discussion. It is more the, the scratching of the surface of plans that we know are in place. So, uh, you know, uh, another thing that we could really dive into in, in the most extreme and meticulous detail, but uh, I'm just really curious, and I'll ask you both this prompting question, what was your main emotion or feeling when you uh, heard the news break of this uh, potential shakeup to the English football structure? And I'll start with you, Elijah. How did you feel when, when you saw this all uh, break on the Twitter and internet world? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good, um, but I do think that it does, as an American, we, I feel like we're so distant, um, and I mean, I'm excluding Adam from this, but as an American, Zach and I, we're so distant from like really what makes football football in the UK, and it really is about the fan. It's about the local localization. It's about the community, and um, when you're an American and you see Premier League football as something that's over there, like it's really easy to lose sight of that, and and like that's exactly what happened here. I mean, like th this plan is nothing that any of of the America uh, any of the fans wanted. I mean, every fan group was against this. Every fan was a favor was opposed to this, and it was pretty much spearheaded by American business owners. So, I mean, that's kind of my my big my big takeaway is that this is something that's like it's it's really you. It's not something the fans want. It's not something that English football really needs. And they tried to dress it up by making all these sort of benefits for EFL clubs. But ultimately, it's about it's a big power grab. It, it's really getting the big six uh, to make decisions that they really aren't worth. Uh, that really aren't really shouldn't be made by them. You know, ownership, TV revenue, et cetera, et cetera. I'll throw it to you, Adam. 
Yeah. As think, being an actual fan from the UK. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, you, you, you raise some really good points. That's there's two, two kind of key points that I want to kind of get across here. Point number one, you mentioned it really, really well, whether or not this was designed to help lower league clubs or it was just dressed up as that, that's a very real need right now. There are plenty mm-hmm. of clubs that without the fans there in the stadium, in the lower leagues will go bust because they don't have the TV money. They don't have necessarily like the, the kit sales or whatever it may be there. There are going to be clubs that fault that are in the top, maybe not the top league, but you know, in the league one, league two kind of realm, I think there are going to be clubs that fold without this. If this virus continues on for as long as it's going to go, that's a very real problem. Point number two yeah. is Newcastle takeover. Um, if that were, there's, there's a chance that, the Liverpool and Manchester United um, kind of boards and executives got in the ear of the FA and put a veto on the Saudi takeover. There's a chance that that happened. And the other concern was that we were going to potentially have, if that were ever to kind of come back again, or there was a chance it was going to go through, then you've got those big six teams who've already established themselves, albeit recently for teams like Manchester City. And then you think you've got Mm -hmm. West Ham, Southampton, and one other team, I forget who it was. I think it was Everton was the other team. It's Everton, yeah. Yep, they've got to get six of nine votes. And if they get six, they can basically shoot it down. So they can veto any owner that wants to come in. That really scares me. It really puts the... The beauty of the Premier League and any team necessarily being able to compete with the right investment, it throws that out the window. And I'm glad it got shut down. And again, it, you know, I, I don't think there's anybody naive enough to think that that was the end of the discussion, that that was, you know, slaying the monster and now that the danger is over. This will come back in another iteration. There's already discussions taking place about a European Super League that kind of goes in the same idea of the separation of the quote unquote big six from everyone else and being treated differently. But I, I like that you you made that point, Adam. I think that the danger is not just how the the big six is being treated differently, but it's the way in which the big six under the premise of a lot of these bylaws would be able to ensure that they are never knocked off their throne. And that's Mm -hmm. that's the scary part is the ability to veto owners, the ability to take more TV revenue, which is a huge part of the development that they're trying to go through. Um, it is all but ensuring that there can't be a new Manchester City. That Manchester City can be the only Manchester City. Even Chelsea, a team that you know has always been a fairly successful club, but was nothing compared to what they are now before getting bought by Roman Abramovich. And it's it's a tale that's as old as time, right? It's the ones in power do not want other people to travel the same paths that they did to get into power. They want to hold on to what they have. Uh, and we will we will certainly be talking about this well more in the future. I uh, just wanted to touch upon that now, but I, I think it is an important thing to bring up. However, we <laughs> we do want to, to continue going through our, our normal structure here today, uh, going through EPL top scores. We'll just quickly gloss over that before going to our second and final commercial break. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Adam's man, if only he was Welsh, Adam Goffin says to himself in the mirror every single night before he goes to bed. I'm a huge still, fan of that. <laughs> still leading the Premier League. I will say, you've been on the, the DCL train for, for longer than he was putting out these goals, so mm-hmm. credit where credit is due. Calvert-Lewin and Hyungman Son, uh, two hyphenated players leading the league in goals with seven through five games. Uh, next, we have Mo Salah, who is in incredible form at the moment, finding that record-setting form from a few years ago with six goals. And then Harry Kane and Jamie Vardy 
sitting at four, Vardy is a, a bit of a Darth for goals in the past two games. So we'll see if he can climb that table a bit more. But we'll we'll keep track of if Calvert-Lewin and Son can keep that up. If Tottenham continues to have two players in the top three, pretty impressive thing to do, uh, albeit not that impressive if they're going to let up three goals in seven minutes every match. However, uh, that's where we stand right now. We'll go into a quick commercial break, and then we will jump into armchair pundits. 10 to 90, and then wrap it all up for the day. So commercials now, stay locked. All right, welcome back to the False Nines. We're wrapping it up here, as Zach mentioned before that commercial break, starting it off with armchair pundits. Um, We haven't asked Elijah to prepare anything for our episode, but Elijah, feel free to weigh in on our crazy views here and let us know if you think that they're fact or fiction, um, if you'd like to. Uh, Zach, would you like to go first or second? Ooh, um, I'll go first here. I feel fr- pretty fiery about this, so I, I will start it off. So we we talked about <laughs> quite quite a lot earlier the the issues that exist with one Jordan Pickford, um, the concerns with his discipline, the concerns with uh, you know his attitude. Uh, but nonetheless, it seems as though no matter what this man does, he continues to hold the place as the England number one under Gareth Southgate. So my armchair pundits for you right now today is that England has zero current goalkeepers who deserve to be able to start at Euros 2021. Carl Darwin, I don't know if you've been watching him. He's uh, He's been unreal. So there you okay, go. So, so, so let, let me let me then, fair enough, let me filter that out a little bit. England has zero current keepers who have appeared in the England team that should be starting in Euros 2021. Obviously, England has to start a keeper. Well, they don't have to, but it would be a, a pretty smart move for them to do so. Put Kyle Walker however, in there. However, <laughs> I would say that there's not one keeper who has appeared for England and is active in the uh, in the national team that should be starting in an international tournament. So to defend this point, there are five keepers that would really kind of fill out that list of potential number ones, although some are less than others. Jordan Pickford. Yeah. Dean Henderson. Mm-hmm. Nick Pope, Jack Butland, and Tom Heaton. Okay, these are these are the five who are have in the past few years been in the English conversation. Pickford, we've gone through all the issues with Pickford right now. I don't think that he is a man that can live up to the moment after one small tournament he had three years ago. Dean Henderson, not a starting goalkeeper. You can't be starting a player who doesn't start in club play in an international tournament. Unless you're American uh, and you decide Zach Steffen is the truth, and no matter what he does, he's going to be the the American number one. Two words for you, Zachary. Wayne Hennessy, starting goalkeeper (laughs) for Wales at Euro 2020 next year. You watch. Nick Pope. A goal, the goalkeeper for Burnley has not had an inspiring start to the season. Jack Butland plays in the second division of English football. That would be an embarrassment to have him starting between the six and Euros. And Tom Heaton is the third choice keeper at Aston Villa at the moment. I don't think England has any viable options to start in Euros. And I think that that is the biggest issue with the England national team is that not only do they have keeper issues, but there is no right answer for them. But I think that's their own issue. I mean, if you don't have this sort of quote-unquote Northeast bias, then it's like, I don't understand why you aren't looking at Carl Darlow. I don't understand why you're not looking at, if you're going to go the young keeper route, if you're looking at purely form, I mean, Nick Pope and Dean Henderson both got in solely on form. I mean, if you look at pure ability before 
two years ago, neither one of them are in the conversation, especially Dean Henderson. He's a backup at Man United. So I think that you, Adam's shaking his head, but literally that is exactly what happened. He got an opportunity, took advantage of it, and here he is. If Carl Darlow keeps up the same form as him, I don't understand why you don't give him a shot because that's essentially how Dean Henderson got the job in the first place. He okay. wasn't really a part of the youth picture, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah. On that point, though, I'll say this. Like I have to agree with Zach. Like, there's no chance Carl Darlow or anyone gets gets in there. I, I do think there's there's a huge issue at keeper with England. Um, I do think down the road, maybe there's a Freddie Woodman just because he's boys with Garrett Southgate, but it's not his time yet. Um, and maybe not his time anytime soon, maybe 2026 World Cup at the at the earliest. Okay. I, I, I need to go off on a little bit of a rant here. First and foremost, Carl Darlow is not young. He turned 30 last week. <laughs> I didn't say he was young. I said I, I didn't say he was young. I was just saying that he's a keeper. That that deserves That's an opportunity. Great. That's, That's great. all I'm saying. He's a he's a keeper. That, I don't, absolutely right. Like, listen, and he's leading the league in saves. I don't I don't know. I'm just yeah, because he has to there. face a barrage of shots, and that's what he is. Carl Darlow is a shot stopper. That's it. No, nothing special. Yeah. He's a shot stopper. He's Tim Krul. He's not a leader on the field. He's got plenty of errors in him, and I. He's just not that good. He, he shouldn't be leading the line. He started for the but, Netherlands but national a, team, a, by the way. That's, a, that's exactly yeah. the point I'm making is that, like, if, if Carl Darlow is even in the discussion with all these, you know, kind of deficiencies in his game, that's – therein lies the entire issue. Dean Henderson. But none Dean, of those other Dean guys Henderson. have been shot stoppers. I mean, I, I like Dean Henderson. I think that he is the best English prospect at goalkeeper right now. That's accurate. Bar Dean Henderson but I will also come in. Backwards. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Adam, Adam, I want to hear your point here. All I'm saying is it's difficult to justify starting a man who doesn't start week in and week out for his club. Yes, but you're talking about eight to ten months from now. You're talking about at the Euros, right? That he will start and play at the Euros, correct? Of course, yeah. So by the end of the season, De Gea is going to shit the bed many, many times during the season. Henderson will come in and Henderson will be the starting goalkeeper for Manchester United by the end of the season and will be starting at goalkeeper in the, in the Euros. You watch. Fair enough. So you're saying that the, the Spanish enough, number one is going to just like get dropped. De Gea is garbage. Come on. De Gea is not even a top five Premier League goalkeeper. I'm, Adam, well, Adam, I'm just it's, saying. It's it's difficult to make that. It's difficult for me to like accept that argument because like, what what do you want me to say? That I know that in three months he will be starting. I, right now, there, England right now right now England has zero viable goalkeeper options. Not your, one of those goalkeepers. Your point I is listed, a good one. Yep. Not one. Not one of those goalkeepers I listed right this second should be starting in Euros. It's a problem position for Southgate. Your point is a very very valid one. There's not a great option there. But I think if Henderson were a starting keeper in the goalkeeper league, there'd be no doubt that he'd be the number one for England. Which he isn't. Anyway, he is not a starting goalkeeper. And we're yeah. talking about right now. We're not talking about eight months from now. Right now, there's not one good option for Gareth Southgate. Adam, what is your armchair pundit? You've segued me beautifully into this, Zach, because it's very similar. Ross Barkley will start in midfield for England in the first game of Euro 2020. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, sure. Why not? Uh, like... Three, whatever. Hear, hear, hear me out here. Three, three and five for Barkley in all competitions. Dean Smith sold him on coming to Villa to get game time and tell him that he would make the Euro squad. I don't think he makes the squad. I think he makes a starting lineup. He's got natural talent. Ruben Loftus-Cheek has always been favored by 
Southgate, and I think that he's got way more talent. He's a better player than Ruben Loftus-Cheek. They play two different positions. No, he plays an attacking midfield. Actually, this season, Barkley has, ah. Ross Barkley has played in central midfield, central attacking midfield, and he's even played a game as a striker this season for Villa. Check your so, who, who, so, okay, make your case. I don't mean to interrupt. Yep. Uh, at 26 years old, he'll be 27 in December. That's peak career time. This is the ideal time that you want somebody playing in a major tournament. They're, they have plenty of experience. They're not getting too old and losing a step. He's healthy. He's fit. He's scoring goals. He's contributing. I think that Ross Barkley will start for England in their first game of the Euros. Yeah. Uh, I like that. I, I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I, the only thing that I would have against against that is that it does feel like with a lot of national teams in general, but specifically with the English national team, that Gareth tends to play favorites. Um, you look at – if you look at their nature's league play, there's been guys who've clearly – been really good and then they've dropped for the next match it doesn't make any sense to me but we'll leave that alone um i do have a little bit of armchair pundit i don't know if it's really a hot take but i do think it's something worth mentioning give it to us it's Elijah. related it to, to english us. football uh, old gunner whatever his name is old gunner shigar blah. he's going to be the first manager fired yes old gunner adam we found a match to your inability to pronounce vishy batuai that's amazing it's 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 ole gunner solshire and vishy batuai oh this is gorgeous he will be the first manager sacked i love that yeah, I mean, I think that – I mean, there was rumors it was going to happen if he lost to Newcastle. But honestly, we talked about this already. That 4-1 win against Newcastle was not really impressive. It was more – it was impressive in the sense that, like, Newcastle imploded so well. But I don't think Man United particularly looked great. Again, I'm a biased Newcastle fan who thinks that, like, it's really hard to, like – you could look terrible against Newcastle and win 4-1. And I feel like that's the case. It still feels like he's not really getting the best out of a lot of the the, the marquee players there. Um, I mean, bringing Paul Pogba on off the bench, uh, I don't know if that's really going to run you any favors. They've still got an issue in defense. Uh, Harry Maguire, I, I mean, he's he's fine, but there's still issues there. And it doesn't seem like the team like still is able to function as a whole, uh, in my opinion. And there's they've already kind of started the season off really rocky. And again, putting four past Newcastle, when two of them are after the, the keepers injured and they all happen after the 80th minute does not really scream confidence in my eyes. You play a competent side and you probably get away with that match at a, at the best with a draw, um, a one, one draw. So, which again, not that impressive against Newcastle, no offense, Newcastle. I will roast them until the end of time. That is my, that is my do my sole duty as a Newcastle supporter to keep them hold them accountable. And I don't know, a four, one went over them. Isn't really impressive. He's got to be the first out, probably because no one else is going to be ballsy enough or man enough to fire their manager. Um, and it's an attractive job. I mean, you look at the talent on paper. If you could figure it out, you're potentially winning the league. So if you look at managers that are available, I don't know if Pochettino is going to say no to that job per se. Um, obviously, there's a lot of pressure, but it's got a lot of players um, that, that are good and both young, both old, et cetera, et cetera. It's a good job. Yep, Adam? I, yes or no? I, yes or I, no? I, Yes. Can't think of anybody else that would be sacked or uh, I'm trying to, Steve Bruce is the only other person I could make a case for. And we're not lucky enough to be able to get rid of him. Yeah, no, there's no way a yes man doesn't get sacked at Newcastle United. We all know this Um, unless he gets relegated. That's the one caveat. Uh, I like that a lot, Elijah. I 
I agree with you. The only the only way in which that doesn't happen is a panic firing by a bottom team. That's yeah, I could see that's Fulham the, doing that I, for sure. I could see Scotty Parker. I could see probably not Chris Wilder because he has that kind of Chris Wilder and and uh, um, Sean Dyche. Chris Wilder. Well, they wouldn't Chris dare Potter fire Sean Dyche. He yeah, it's like Chris both Potter of those guys. Sean they've Dyche. already they've already proved to you that they can do it. So you just have faith that they could get you out of that hole. Yeah. So so that's what I was going to say is, Scotty Parker maybe Chris Wilder and Sean Dyche should be fired if by ten matches they're at this point, but they won't be. We all know that. Um, West Brom potentially, Brighton, or like you know, Slavin Bilic has been fired a hundred times by a hundred different clubs. So. It could happen. But, but no, I, I think that is a good point, Elijah. I, I will leave it at that. I think that is a good prediction. Um, all right. Let's go ahead and get into 10 in 90. you mind if I go first today, guys? Uh, sure. I mean, okay. yeah, do what you want. All right. Let's do this. So my topic for this week is going to be, as I like to, statistics. So I'm going to go into statistics here. Um, I don't know if you've listened to the pod before, Elijah, but I like to throw in a nice Welsh word at the end there. So hopefully you're studying up on the Welsh language too. Question oh, number I, one. I looked up Welsh in uh, the in on Google today, on Google. and I was confused. I looked at the Wikipedia page for the language, and I'm, I'm still confused. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. So first question. Aston Villa are one of only two teams in Europe's top five leagues to boast a hundred percent record to start the season. I mentioned this earlier on the pod. Who's the other team? Uh, Bayern Munich. No, Incorrect. they lost. To, they lost to uh, Hoffenheim. PSG. Well, actually, wait. PSG lost today. So wait, no, they didn't. They lost yesterday. Oh, so I'm going to go with PSG then. Zach, I don't believe it's PSG. Is it? Is it Inter Milan? It is not, but you're very close. It's their AC Milan. AC Milan, exactly. Yep. All right. Question number two. Only two players in the Premier League have gotten three yellow cards so far this season. Can you name either one? Uh, Oh, that's tough. Um, You can? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you go first, I just want to hang it over his head that I know the answer. Um, I, th- I, I'm thinking. I think one's Jamal Lewis. I think yeah. he's got yeah. three. Yeah. I That's, think that. Um, yeah. Nice. That was what I was gonna say. I know Jamal Lewis yeah. has three. Who's the? Who, what club is the other player on? The other player's club is the most impressive team in the Premier League this season, Aston Villa. Ooh, is it? Um, I'm not sure. I have no idea. Yeah. All right, it's McGinney Esther. John, John McGinn. That's crappy little. That's crappy little Scotsman. <laughs> John, uh, speaking, speaking of McGinney Esther, Gus will be buying a, a John McGinn Scotland jersey. So as well he oh, should. As that. well he the should. Number, the, the original friend of the pod, Angus Armstrong, will be donating that. <laughs> All right. Only one team has had more than one red card so far this season. Who's that team? Uh, Sheffield. Incorrect. Zachary. Um, Everton. Nope. You're both wrong. It's Brighton. Oh, really? 
Dunk, and then Basuma against uh, Newcastle, if you remember that one. Oh, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Very late on in the game. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like very end. Yep. All right. Here's a good one for you guys. Question number four. Only one player has scored four-headed goals so far this season. Nobody else has more than one. Who has scored four-headed goals this season in the Premier League? The easiest question you've ever asked. On This is an embarrassingly easy question for you to ask me. Has Dominic Calvert-Lewin scored four-headed goals in the I Premier I just League? wanted you to say Dominic Calvert-Lewin. <laughs> I was about to say, it's like he's got seven, so just the odds yeah, are uh, just uh, like in uh, his uh, favor. Of the five players of the Premier League who have scored four goals or more, and two of them are Mo Salah and Hyungman Son, players that have scored maybe five-headed goals between them. <laughs> <laughs> now that you put it that way, when I think about the top scorer ranks, it probably was a bit of a giveaway. Uh, that was a good yeah. one. I like that. But it was, it was still great to hear you say Dominic Calvert-Lewin. <laughs> All right, question number five. Only one player has conceded multiple penalty kicks so far this season. Who is that player? Alexander Mitrovic. That would be a logical answer, but it is not the correct answer. I know he just conceded one. I just figured that it was probably his third or fourth of the season. <laughs> um, uh, only, sorry, Who's, say that again, Adam. Only one player has conceded multiple penalties? Yes. Um, Who's played Man United twice? Hmm. Uh, I think it, no, 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 I think it... Yeah, who gave up the penalty in the Newcastle game? Is it Fabian Char? It's not. It's no, a Fabian Robin... Char's only made one of new appearance this season in the Premier. True, sorry. So, no. yeah. Robin Cock for Leeds actually did it. I think at the first two games, he had successive penalties that he conceded. Bielsa ball, baby. That's right. All right. Final question for me. Question number six. Bonus question for you, Elijah. Pronounce this Welsh word. I'll spell it for you. Y S. G O L. Eigel. Zach? I love that. That's leaving out so many sounds and letters that that's perfect. Uh, Y S G O L. Eskel. It's very close. It's Uskal. Ooh, okay. Uskal. And Uskal means, guys? Uskal means. Beer. um, Uskal means. Garbage. It means school, just like I schooled you on Welsh language. Wow. Um, All right. Um, Time to hang up the old I did like that on a Wednesday night. <laughs> 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 oh, man. All right. That, those were good. Those were a fun one. The fun group, Adam. Uh, all right. Let me let me run through mine quickly. Not as fun as, as yours, but... Um, all right, so we are five matches into the Premier League season, and the club that has given up or has conceded the most goals is Liverpool Football Club. Which club will concede the most goals at the end of the season? Fulham. Okay. Yeah, Fulham. Not really done much to address the, a defense that is was not really that good in the championship either. So, yeah, probably Fulham. So, so Liverpool and West Brom, excuse me, both have given up 13. Fulham and Manchester United have given up 12. So just behind the pace there for worst defenses. Crazy that Liverpool and Manchester United are in the top two. Um, okay, question number two. Newcastle currently sits at 13th place in the table. Do either of you feel as though Newcastle will crack, crack the top 10 for the remainder of the Premier League season? Yeah, I mean, if they if they grind out a one 0 win against Wolves, they'll be in the top ten again. Well, depending on other results, but probably yes. 
Yeah. My, so my I think yes. Sure. My answer is no. I think Wolves and Everton up next by then will be far enough off the pace that we don't get into the top 10 again for the rest of the season. There's there's my Newcastle cynic. I've, I've worked my magic on you over the last <laughs> year, Adam. That's what I love to hear. Uh, okay, question number three. Of the bottom four, uh, West Brom, Burnley, Sheffield United, and Fulham, uh, which who will go winless the longest? So not only are these the four worst teams, but as you might expect, the four teams that have yet to win a game in the Premier League. Who do you think will go the longest amount of time without winning a match? Oh, I think it's going to be Fulham. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of really big question marks that kind of get thrown under the radar because they've looked so bad, but their best goal scorer is Alexander Mitrovic, and he just hasn't really looked good at the start of the season. If he doesn't get going quickly, it could be a disaster for them, uh, and especially when he's like their main source of offense. It's like if we lose Alan St. Maxman for the next few weeks, it's going to be hard for Newcastle to really score. Adam? Uh, might be a bit controversial. Sheffield United. Okay. Um, I feel like there's not a lot of goals in them. They've conceded seven goals so far this season, which is actually up there and not a terrible realm of goals conceded. They've scored two. Lowest return in the Premier League this season. You need to score goals to win games. And I think Sheffield United be the, might be the last team to pick up a win. Yeah, I mean, uh, all three of the bottom three at just one point through uh, through the, the matches they've played, so all safe picks. Okay, uh, question number four. Uh, when we see the next Merseyside Derby in the second half of the season, so in 2021, do either of you would, – would either of you put money on uh, – a player on Liverpool trying to take out Jordan Pickford intentionally for what he did to Virgil van Dijk this past weekend. And if, if so, who is that player on Liverpool? I mean, I guess in an ideal world, I would love to see that happen, but knowing a Jurgen Klopp managed team, they're still more about results and doing something that reckless that would could potentially cost your team a game by you going down a man. I, I just, I don't see that happening, but I would love for, for like, I don't know, Sadio Mane to to take out Jordan Pickford just because it'd be hilarious to watch. Yeah, um, I don't think so either. Um, I just think that that's that's one of the harder players on a team to target. You know, you're not going in for 50-50 challenges with a goalkeeper. They go up for crosses, but it's harder to really kind of get in and, and put a really tough challenge in on a goalkeeper because they're so protected. If it were to happen, who do I think would do it? Um Maybe Fabinho? Fabinho. Yeah. Good job. Ooh, interesting. I like or Joe Gomez. <laughs> a rogue Joe Gomez elbow. Yeah. I, I was gonna Just, say I was gonna say that Liverpool must be upset that they uh that they let Dejan Lovren go in the summer because nothing oh, nothing yeah. is better than the retribution of an <laughs> <Eastern> European. <laughs> I thought I thought about Hendo too, but Hendo and Pickford are buddies. They're Mackham buddies. They are Mackham scum. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, fair enough, though. It, it will be a chippy game, without a doubt, nonetheless, as it always is. Uh, okay, so, so fifth and final question. Um, so through five matches, Marquis signing James Rodriguez has three goals and three assists. Do you think that James Rodriguez makes the team of the season? Yes. Yeah, probably. I mean, this is a team that's suited for his style. They're very offensive. And even if they don't end up as a top five team, there's still going to be a lot of goals and chances created by him. And with the talent around him, you look at the players who are in front of him uh, and alongside him in attack, they're all really good players. I mean, it's not like he's not 
like an Oatsill situation a few years back where guys are going to be missing shots, Calvert-Lewin and Charles are going to put the chances away. It's just got to be open and available for Hamas to set them up. Mm-hmm. And the way they're playing right now with Thomas he has, he's going to going to get in a double-digit assist, which that alone will warrant him that team, team of the season position. Yeah, yeah. There, are, there are certainly those flashes of that kind of Kevin DeBrona style play that we that we see out of Hamas that staying at the top of the box always looking for the cross before the shot but still able to to put in a belter at times so it, it really exciting to watch him play for Everton right now I think part of it also for Mizak is the fact that he's got such good holding midfielders in that team and Allen and yeah. Gomez that he's going to get creative license to be able to go forward a lot more yeah. and with those top quality strikers ahead of him like Elijah mentioned he's going to have a wonderful season you saw Real Madrid lost 3-2 at home today could yeah. do the James Rodriguez right now, couldn't they, Mister Zidane? I'm just saying that, nail too. and it, I think it's also it's 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 hard to. It, I mean, it's easy to forget. I would say that James Rodriguez is coming off playing. He's playing. He he played at two clubs where you're talking about two of the best clubs in the world. You look at it on paper. It's it. He's the team's not built around him at Real Madrid. It wasn't built around him then. It's not built around him at Bayern Munich as well. So this team at Everton, like he is the feature like player like it, the, the offense runs through him so he's just gonna by sheer volume be able to put up numbers that he's never been able to put before put up before and yeah you could say oh maybe he took a step back but he only took a step back because he wasn't the feature player at two very solid teams uh so i don't know free transfer guys as well no transfer yeah. for hamas crazy and a, an amazing job that carlo enchilotti did with that that summer budget that he had um uh, I, I like that point elijah i would say as as we need a token american sports reference on every podcast james rodriguez is to everton what derrick henry is to the tennessee titans mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay all right i wanted to see if that landed it was, a, it was a bit of a stretch i don't know if i buy it as much as i said it but uh, <laughs> anyway folks uh, that was episode oh no let's a quick quick touch on the matches that we're excited for so let's each name one match that we're excited for for match day six i will start off because i'm the host of this podcast and i okay. will say the <laughs> the match i am i'm most excited for on the weekend is Aston Villa against Leeds United. It's going to be a goal fest. There are going to be nine goals scored. Uh, hopefully, maybe not. It might end 1-0 Leeds. Who knows at this point in time. But uh, that's one I'm most excited for. Adam, Elijah, what is a different match that you are excited for for the weekend? Go ahead, Elijah. I'll go Man United-Chelsea. I think they're two teams that are going to want to establish themselves. A lot of question marks from both sides. But two teams are going to want to establish themselves. It's either going to be a thrilling match or it's going to be Man United getting absolutely pumped by Chelsea. And I would love for Christian Pulisic to have a hat trick, you know, maybe a couple assists. You know, that just look that's that's enjoyable for me to watch. Uh, so there you go. All right. I'm going to go with uh, not necessarily a great one on paper, but an interesting one. West Ham versus Manchester City. Purely oh, because cool. West nice. Ham are in great form scoring goals for fun and i just want to see which west ham team turns up because they have the potential to knock off city city great defense so far this season they've been doing a lot better defensively but not as strong offensively so i think it could actually be a quite interesting game it's it's jekyll and hyde against the sky blues uh, this weekend <laughs> between city and west ham that's great those were the three matches that i wrote down so i'm glad we're all on the same page uh, with those lads. Um, all right. I uh, think it's about time to wrap up. Any final thoughts that you want to toss out to the listeners before we, we call it a day? 
I just want to apologize for our rants. Uh, it got pretty emotional, so this might be a long episode. But if you powered through it, we love you, and that's all that matters. Yep. Thanks for coming on, Elijah. I just want to say uh, great to have you on, as always, and always appreciate your passion on the pod. So. Oh, of course. It's, it's my pleasure. All right, lads. For, for uh, the 54th episode. Footy. Footy. <laughs> uh, footy.